If you would, please go ahead and open your copy of God's Word to Ephesians in chapter 1. You may have heard this before, and if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you might have heard Ephesians preached through before and heard that verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence in the Greek. Well, it's probably more like a paragraph. In, in Greek, you would structure your letters so that the reader had time and places where he would take a breath. So it's probably more akin to a, or more like a paragraph. And what we would think of sentences would be the places where the speaker would top, stop and take a breath. Um, one commentator broke this passage down that way, so I'm going to read it from that format this morning. Uh, but go ahead and follow along in your copy of God's Word. Maybe you'll hear it a little bit differently than you've heard it before. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 14. We're going to, the sermon's from 3 down through the first part of verse 6, but for the sake of context, we'll hear the whole section, the whole passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Having heard God's word this morning, let us now go and ask that he would bless the proclamation of it to us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is a wondrous thing that you should make us your people, that you should make us sons, that we might call out to you, Father, Abba, Father. What a wondrous thing it is to have your love, to have your mercy, to be reconciled to you, to have the stain upon us, upon our lives and our hearts and our minds, upon our desires from going against your law day in and day out, taken away from us by the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would bless us now, that we would hear and understand your word, 
that you would work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we might hear and obey. Exalt yourself in our midst, we ask. May we hear the voice of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever had somebody who did something for you that was, that was just incredible? It was absolutely wonderful. It was above and beyond. It was unlike anything you had ever had. What, what was the response of your heart? How did, how did you respond to that? Was there great thankfulness and gratitude? Well, we have an account early on in the book uh, of Genesis, early on in the Bible, of God doing something great and wonderful for someone. And this is Abraham. You may have heard of the story of Abraham. God took a man who had no sense of who God is or who God was other than what he could see in the stars and in the, the rivers and in the trees and the grass and the animals around him, and he made him an incredible promise. And he kept making promises, promise after promise, and God kept those promises, so much so that this man Abraham becomes an example to everyone of someone trusting in God's promise. Abraham responded to God's amazing gift with trust and worship. Now, last Sunday, we heard from the first two verses of this letter that God delivers a message of, of God's favor on those who have broken his law, and God makes peace with them so that they hear his word. That's what we heard last Sunday, that we are to listen and obey what the apostle says in this letter. And this morning, the apostle starts off this letter with an amazing explosion of worship of the Father. That's what we're hearing this morning. Now, the focus of this passage is on the Father. And the focus of these verses, verses 3 through the first part of verse 6, is on what the Father has done. It's all about the Father and the worship as, as Paul worships the Father here. But there's a, there's a doctrine here behind this worship of the Father that has caused great debate among Christians. So let me take a few moments here in the, in the introduction to talk about this doctrine of election. And then we, the focus of the sermon will remain on the focus of the passage. On the one hand, this should be easy because we have the word right here. Election. Choosing. A little bit further down, we already heard the idea of predestined. So it's, it should be easier for us because it's there in the Bible. It, the, the word incarnation, to, to speak of the Son of God coming and taking a human nature to himself. That word, our incarnation, is not in the Bible. The, the Trinity, the word the Trinity is not in the Bible. This, this concept of God being one being and three persons. We, we have that concept all over the Bible, but we don't have that word. So here's this doctrine that we have all these arguments about, and yet the word itself is even here in the Bible. So it ought to be easier for us, but it can be difficult. So let me give you some reasons why I hold to this doctrine of election, this idea that before anything was made, God, the Father, chose or picked a certain number, a specific number of people to be his people, and that Christ would come and die for those specific people, and then the Holy Spirit would bring that work of salvation and change their hearts. That's the doctrine that we're talking about this morning. Well, first of all, it's in the Bible. And it starts with Adam. 
Now, this is obvious, so you may think this is somewhat humorous to make this a reason for holding the doctrine of election, but Adam didn't create himself. Adam didn't choose to be in the garden. God made that choice for him. So already right at the beginning of, the, of history, God is demonstrating that God is the one who does the choosing, and what God chooses is what happens. And then Abraham, we've already mentioned Abraham. What, who was Abraham before God saved him? He was a pagan, living among pagans, serving false gods, worshiping false gods. And God chose him and pulled him out of that and gave him these great promises. And, and that's when Abraham exercised faith to trust in God. Think about Israel as well. What is Israel doing? They're slaves in Egypt. Are they choosing to be a nation? Are they choosing to be a people of God? No, God goes in and rescues them. He delivers them. He brings them out of Egypt. God picks them to be his people. So it, it's, it's all the way throughout the Old Testament. And then you come into the New Testament, and it, it's not as if God changes who he is or the way he operates. God picks people to be his own not only is it in the Bible, but it also fits who God is and how salvation works. How, how is God displayed in the Old Testament? He's strong. He's powerful. Excuse me. He's powerful. There's no one who can change his mind or prevent him from doing what he wants to do. But we are weak. We are the ones who cannot save ourselves. It also humbles the pride of man. It's really humbling to sit down and think through, there was nothing in me. There was nothing desirable. There wasn't anything that I did. God simply picked me. And that's astounding. And that's humbling. In fact, if, you're, if you hold to the doctrine of election and you're proud about it, <laughs> you're not understanding the doctrine. It should be humbling. It also is helpful. So it not only humbles the pride of man, exalts God, but it's also helpful. If you're holding to the doctrine of election so that you can win arguments with other Christians who don't hold to the doctrine of election, again, you don't understand the doctrine. It's there for comfort. It's there for help. In the midst of life, when, when Christ talks about how the, the storm comes against the house and it just rips it off the foundation. When those kind of things come in life, when we lose someone that we love, when, we have, when we're at our wit's end and we have no idea what to do next, the doctrine of, the, of election is there for your comfort. In the midst of the worst thing that you can possibly imagine, God chose you. And nothing can take you away from him. Nothing can undermine that salvation. It's for our comfort. It's for the point of relying on God. All right. The doctrine of election in brief. So if you have other questions, please feel free to talk to me about those questions. There's many good books that you can read on the topic, but let's get back to our passage this morning. Here, these Christians, these people living in Ephesus, these followers of the way who have put their ultimate trust in God and man, Christ, Jesus Christ, the God-man, these people have great reason to worship the Father. And that's what we have before us this morning. Now, like them, we were utterly corrupt. We were guilty before God. We had no access to God. 
we had no access to Christ. We were outside God's family. We were unwilling and unable to praise and glorify and worship the Father. We were just like them. This morning we hear of the worship of the Father, and the Father is worthy of that worship. So we're going to take this in three points. Now, I, I was struggling with how to come up with, not how to come up with these three points, but how to phrase them so that you could remember them. Um, so the first thing that Paul addresses is that the Father blesses us. Then he talks about the Father choosing his people and then appointing his people to adoption. And there's not really a, a, a way that I could find to work with those to make them work together. If you want to, you could remember it this way, ABC, appointing, choosing, appointing, blessing, and choosing. But we're, we're going to go in the order of the passage this morning. So why should we worship the Father? Why, sh why should we worship and praise this one, the Father? And first off, we see in verse 3, we worship the Father because he has blessed us. We worship the Father because he has blessed us. Now, this is more than just a statement, and we, and we see that if you'll take a look at it. Who has blessed us? What, why, is, why does he say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, the who there is working almost like a because. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has blessed us. That's the idea here. Uh, if you go down a little bit further in that same verse where it says, just as he chose us. Again, it's all, this is the reason why we worship. What Paul is doing, Paul is doing here in these verses, what he is describing, he's giving praise and glory to the Father for his grace. This means that what we have going on here is, again, what we talked about last Sunday. This is more than just creatures before God. These are the ones who have trusted in Christ alone before God who has made himself their Father. God as Father. This is a new relationship that these people were not in, in with him before. And this, these verses are also laid out in a Trinitarian aspect. The Father accomplishes this through the Son by the Holy Spirit. Look at that phrase, blessed us, with what has he given us? Every spiritual blessing. What, what exactly are these spiritual blessings? Now, what Paul does is he, he kind of works this out through the rest of the passage all the way down to verse 14. So let me just run through this real quick. So what are these spiritual blessings? In verse 5, they're election and predestination. In, in verse 6, and we'll go over that as we get, go through the passage. In verse 6, acceptance in Christ, that the Father accepts us. Verse 7, here's another spiritual blessing, that our sins are taken away. And this is also described as God purchasing us. He, he redeems us. He buys us back from our bondage and our slavery to, to the inability to do what is right. Verse 9, we know things now. We know the good news of Jesus Christ dying on a cross so that sinners might have life in him. Verse 10, we are united to Christ. When the Father looks at his people, he sees Jesus. Verse 6, excuse me, verse 11. What is another spiritual blessing? We get heaven. We get the beauty and glory of being with God forever and ever with no more strife, no more trials, no more suffering, no more sorrow. 
And then another, the last thing, verse 13, the Holy Spirit, this is the other spiritual blessing, the Holy Spirit preserves us and guarantees that we will go through life and get to heaven. That's incredible. Uh, you may have, you may have, may have seen those old letters where you would, you would roll up the letter and you would put a wax seal on it, and this signifies who owns the letter, right? And it's not broken, right? Or maybe a, a canning jar where you would seal the lid so that the contents aren't, don't go bad. That's this idea of sealing, and the Holy Spirit does that for us. We, we live in a world that is consumed with what's going on with the physical, the material, the things that we want, the things that we have, the things that we do, the things that we can touch and see and taste and feel, the five senses. Paul is saying that one of the reasons we worship the Father is because the Father has given us things that go beyond what we can see and touch and taste and sense and feel and smell. He's given us these things, and they're secure, and they're safe, and they can never be taken away from us. It's also more than what we could expect. This comes to us from heaven, from the glory of God himself, and it brings us to heaven, it brings us to God, so that we get to enjoy these spiritual blessings now in this life, and in their fullness, in their greatness in the world to come. It's, it's a speaking of the Spirit and what the Spirit does. Now, in our, in our Bibles, we have spiritual blessings, and the, the S there is lowercase. It should probably be uppercase, because these are the blessings which the Holy Spirit himself brings to us. So there's a lavishness, an abundance, a richness in what the Father provides to his people through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. You may remember John chapter 15 where Paul, excuse me, Paul, where Jesus Christ speaks to the apostles and says, abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He also describes the Father as the one who comes and prunes the branches, trims the, the, the branches back so that they bear lots of fruit. That's kind of the idea that we have here, that the Father is a gardener, and he's producing fruit through the Holy Spirit. What kind of fruit? Turn over a, a few pages back to Galatians in chapter 5. What kind of fruit does this gardener, this great and glorious gardener, grow in his garden? Chapter 5 of Galatians in verse 22 but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the kind of fruit that our Father is growing. Uh, turn back to Ephesians, if you will. And look down to chapter 2 and verse 6. Because we, we have these spiritual blessings. We've just gone over that. But we have them in heavenly places. What, what, what is he getting at here? If you look down at chapter 2 and verse 6, you see that uh, Paul says this in verse 6. And raised us up together. So this is the idea that when Christ rose from the dead, when he, came, when he was brought back to life by the power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that all those who were chosen in Christ also were resurrected and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus. When, when Christ left this earth, when he ascended to heaven, we were brought there with him in the Holy Spirit. That's what he's getting at here. Now, how does this work? Look at Colossians in chapter 1. One of the interesting things about Paul is you have to read all of Paul to understand where he's going with different things, to help understand what he says. So Colossians in chapter 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there's, because of the work that the Holy Spirit has done, when we trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit works so that we were there with Christ when he died. The Father looks at us as if we had died on that cross. The Father looks at us as if we had ra been raised from the dead already. And the Father looks at us as if we were sitting with Christ right now in heaven. This is the glory of what the Father accomplishes for us by the Spirit. Now, if you want to see more of that fruit that I mentioned earlier, go back and read Colossians chapter 3, and he works out what does this look like as believers bear fruit. So what, what does this mean for us then, this verse 3 here that we've already considered? It means that we must hold on to the reality of the physical and the spiritual both. We cannot allow ourselves to walk through life as if all that was real was what we can see. We cannot allow ourselves to walk through life as if nothing on this earth mattered. We have to hold on to the physical and the spiritual. And then we must recognize the security of this blessing that we have from the Father. It's a wondrous, incredible thing. It cannot be taken away from you. It cannot be taken away from you. Now, of course, the point that Paul is driving to is that this should produce the fruit of worship. We should be worshiping the Father because of what he has done. All right, our second point then, uh, verse 4. We should worship the Father because he chose us. He chose us. Being chosen means that salvation starts with God. It doesn't start with me. It doesn't start with what I pick, what I chose to do. It starts with God. This is just the normal word for picking something out of a group. When you go to the grocery store and you look at the, the fruit that's there on the shelf and you pick out one apple and not another, that's what this word is. Let's, let's see how this idea is used in Scripture. If you would turn to Isaiah in chapter 43. Now, I'm going to skip around a bit, but I'm going to start in verse 11, excuse me, verse 10. Okay, so we're going to go from verse 11 and 12. We're going to skip down to the first phrase of verse 19, and then we're going to wrap it up with the end of 20 to 21. So if you will follow along, this is what God says. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, 
that I am God. Look down at verse uh, 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. And then skip down to the end of verse 20. To give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. So already in the Old Testament, already before the new covenant has happened, already before Christ, God always already says that he will choose his people and he is the one who saves. Turn over to 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. This becomes even more clear for us uh, after, the, after Christ has come. First Corinthians in chapter one, down to uh, verse twenty-seven. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things that are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That's not very flattering. We don't like to think of ourselves that way, that we are the mean and base things of the world, that we are the weak and we are the foolish. But God has chosen those who could not save themselves. Why? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. What is our boast? It is only that God has chosen us, that the Father has picked us and saved us through his Son and by the Holy Spirit. Let's turn back to Ephesians, if you will. Here in verse 4, where, where Paul goes with this next, Excuse me, I'm in Philippians. That's not very helpful. In verse 4, where, where Paul goes with this next, is not just that we are chosen, but we are chosen after God watches us, after we live a little bit and prove that we're worth it. No, before anything was made outside of time. Outside of time. All, now, all our decisions are bound by time. We can't even conceive of what it's like to exist from moment to moment, to have season after season and the sunrise and sunset. That's how we, how we think, how we exist. But God is not bound by that. God exists outside of time. It doesn't restrict him in any way, in any sense. And what has he done existing eternally forever and ever with no beginning and no end outside of time? He has decided to love his people. That's what the Father has done. And so we worship him because he saves. How does the salvation provoke worship? Well, salvation adds nothing to God. God doesn't receive any benefit from doing this. And salvation provides what we could never do for ourselves. We can never get this. We can never earn it. We can never do enough. We can never be successful enough to somehow get God's attention to make him love us. And yet the Father loves his own. So this doctrine of God choosing, of God picking a people, it's not to divide Christians against each other, 
It's a doctrine for our comfort. It's a doctrine to provoke worship of the Father, and it's for our encouragement. Well, the Father, we worship the Father because he blesses. We worship the Father because he chooses. And then lastly, our last point here, we worship the Father because he predestined us. This is verses 5 to the first part of verse 6. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, this idea, this word predestined, this is the idea of, a, like, appointment, like, to make an appointment ahead of time, to appoint or to pick ahead of time. This pre-appointed, then, what, what, is, what is he doing here? Why is he doing this? So let me just work through this with you. Just, just listen as I go through this. Why are people pre-appointed to adoption? In love. That's why. The Father's love. What for? What are they pre-appointed for? They're pre-appointed for adoption. How are they adopted? Or how does this pre-appointed come? It happens through Jesus Christ. What, what's the controlling way that this is done? According to the good pleasure of his will. And what happens from this? What happens from this being pre-appointed for adoption as sons? For the praise of the glory of his grace. All right, so that's pre-appointed. What is this idea of adoption? What is Paul talking about here? This, the idea here is that these are sons who inherit. That, that concept is linked here in this idea of adoption. Now, we, we don't get that very well because when we think of adoption, we think of we wanted, we wanted to adopt someone into our family. We wanted to have another child. That, that modern adoption is the way we think. But we need to know a little bit about first century adoption in order to get what Paul is getting at here. Sons were adopted for the specific purpose of inheriting the wealth of the father. That's why adoption existed in the first century. No one adopted out of the goodness of their heart, right? Now, certainly that may have happened at one time or the other. But the whole, point, the whole legal system was set up in Greece and Rome so that you, would, you could adopt a young man, he's already grown, into your family and he would inherit your wealth. That's what's going on. That's what adoption is for. Sons are adopted to inherit. And when you do that, he's no longer a member of his, uh, his previous family. He's now, in the eyes of the law and before all the world, the son of the father who adopted him. And it's only for sons. You, you don't adopt daughters in the first century. Adoption is to inherit. This is what Paul is referring to when he, in Galatians 4 when he says, if a son, then an heir. In, in the minds of these Ephesians, these things are linked and now Paul says, you have been adopted by the Father. You've been adopted by God. You've been adopted to rule and inherit the wealth that Christ has gotten for you. The joys of heaven, the rule and reign in the world to come, that is yours by right of adoption. And it's not just men. And it's not just free men. It's for slaves. It's for women. It's for children. You have been adopted by the Father when you trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your breaking of God's law. This is incredible. This is amazing. And when we hear adoption in the New Testament, we should be thinking, wow, I cannot believe that God the Father would make me a son to inherit his wealth. 
And ladies, take that for yourself as well. God has made you and adopted you to inherit his wealth. It's an incredible thing. This is why we worship the Father. And we were pre-appointed for our good. Not for God's self-interest. Pre-appointed for our good, not for God's self-interest. For the praise of the glory of his grace. What does God get out of salvation? Nothing. There isn't any lack in God. There isn't anything that he misses. For all eternity, the Father loves the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Son and the Father. They don't need anything. He doesn't need anything. And yet he has chosen to love and display his love and the salvation of others. You may have seen that, that old film called White Christmas. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. You can find it on Netflix. We watch that every year with, as a family. The kids enjoy it, and I enjoy watching it too. But there's a character in there played by Bean Crosby. And he, he's talking to this lady, and he says, Oh, it's okay. Everyone has an angle. Everyone has an angle. Everyone's out to get what they can get. Everyone's out for their own self-interest. God is not like that. God is not out for his self-interest. God has no angle. There's nothing that God gets from salvation. There's nothing that God lacks that he's added to him by saving us. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Verses 6 through 8. We find God doing this with Israel as well. This whole chapter is a wonderful chapter. I encourage you to go back and read it at some point. But he, he says something here. Moses says something to Israel, to the second generation, right before they go into the promised land. That's helpful for us in our understanding of God's love for us. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than the other people. It's not because you were a great nation. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's not because of us. It's not because of something that God gets from us. God chooses to set his love on people. It's not us. It's God. This should provoke deep and lasting gratitude, joy. Every other relationship that we have in this world is a give and take relationship of one form or another. God gives and gives and gives and gives abundantly and without end. In conclusion, then, we worship the Father because he chose us to be perfect in Christ. It was the Father who picked a people ahead of time to take them from being separated from him, estranged from him, cut off from him, and brought through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit to the Father to be his people and to be their father. And the father picked his own before anything existed, before there was anything in this world. 
before this world was. And the Father picked us, appointed us to be sons, to rule and reign with Christ, not for anything in us, but for his own glory. All this is done through a Savior. And that's where Paul goes next. And that's what we'll hear next Sunday. Worship the Son. Worship the Son. Through Jesus, the natural Son, all that he is, we are not. All that he is, we are not. But Jesus was forsaken. The Son was forsaken so that we could rule and reign in the world to come. What then should you do with the Father's love for you? How should you, <clears throat> excuse me, how should you think about the Father's love in this week? How should you allow that to provoke you to worship in the week ahead? Keep thinking about it. Keep coming back to it. Come back to it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, over and over throughout this week. Think about what it means that the Father, before anything existed, loved you. What a wonderful and incredible thing. Let it provoke worship. When you doubt that love, when you're tempted to think, what, what could the Father's love be like? How, how could he love me if he's dragging me through this in this week? Look at the cross. Look at, the, at Christ, the Son of God, hung there on a Roman torture device in pain and suffering. That's the Father's love for you. That he would send his only Son, that he would sacrifice his only Son that you might have life, that you might have joy in him, that you might have the inheritance and the wealth of God, the King of heaven. So the Father loves his own. He loves you who have trusted in Christ. Rejoice in his blessing you. Rest in his choosing you. And respond to that pre-appointment to adoption by living more and more and more as a son of the Father. You already have the inheritance. The wealth and glory of heaven is already yours. And you will see the fullness of it when Christ returns. So be a son. Live like a son of God. If you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not given up pursuing your own pleasures in this world, if you have not given up trusting in yourself or in others, and have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone, if you have not grabbed hold of him and clung to him for your very life, then I want to warn you that no matter where you come from, no matter where you go, no matter who your friends are or what kind of family you might find, you will never find a love like this that we have heard this morning. All other loves will disappoint. All other relationships will fail you. If you do not have this love, then in the end, you have nothing. And I urge you today, if you have not trusted in Christ, then trust in Jesus. Trust in the one who came to live and a sinless life. Trust in the one who died that others might have life. Trust in the one who rose from the dead and who lives now. And if you rest in him, if you trust in this one, the Father will love you as a son. And if you trust in this one, the Father already loves you.
and you will find that he has loved you forever. Our God blesses the unworthy. He chooses the wretched. He chooses the lost. And he makes us sons. Our God, the Father, is worthy of worship. He is worthy of worship. Let's pray. Our great and holy and awesome God, our Father, who is eternal, who exists outside of time, who is not bound as we are. There is no end to you. There is no beginning. You have always been, and you are always all that you are. And all that is in you is God. There is no other God. Father, we come before you, and we with Paul would echo his praises. We would bless you. We would say that you are glorious. You are wondrous. It is amazing the grace that you have given, the love that you have shown to choose us, to adopt us, to bless us in such wondrous and amazing ways. Father, we ask that you would grant by your Holy Spirit that we would, we would think carefully and earnestly about these things, draw our thoughts back to your love over and over and over again in this coming week. May we rejoice in the one you have sent to save to redeem, to rescue, to deliver, to provide for us that which we could not get for ourselves. We thank you for Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.